Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have with me my guest, Jaren Soloff. Jaren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. For those of you who might not know Jaren, let me tell you. Jaren is the author of a new book, The Postnatal Cookbook. She is a registered dietitian and IBCLC, and she serves as an expert in women's health. Although she is continuing to practice in the field of eating disorder treatment, Jaren also has gained expertise as an IBCLC to fuse her love of nutrition with that of women's health. Uh, she's currently in private practice, and she has her skills as a nutrition therapist and lactation consultant uh, in order to support individuals looking to heal their relationship with food and body. Here's her practice. It's full circle, and she provides evidence-based practices to support women at all stages of the reproductive cycle from preconception through the postpartum period. Informed by her own journey and hundreds of women that she has counseled, Jaren's experience comes full circle to support women in navigating pregnancy, birth, and postpartum from a simple and intuitive framework. So, I know that all of you will want to hear about Jaren's latest endeavor. Clearly, she is a clinical expert in both uh, nutrition and food and lactation. And, of course, we could all kind of uh, debate whether or not breastfeeding and lactation is nutrition or not, because it certainly is nutrition, but it's a lot more than nutrition. So, Jaren, I can't help but ask you the question that I always want to be, I was very curious about this particular one, Uh, what what made you think there are one gajillion uh, cookbooks out there, Mm. Uh, what made you think you wanted to write a book on uh, a postnatal cookbook? Yes, it's a wonderful question, and it's a little bit of twofold. For one, I was approached by the publisher who had this idea, and it really validated an idea that I had already kind of had in mind, um, which really came about because there's really not much on the market. If you think about postpartum or postnatal nutrition, I use those terms interchangeably, um, that there's really not much. When you think about prenatal nutrition, we have hundreds of resources um, and books on how to support nutrition during pregnancy. However, it's really slim when it comes to postpartum nutrition. So there was really just a need that we were seeing in the market and the experience that I have and experiences I've had with my clients really validated that there is a need amongst women for that support during postpartum. Okay. Uh, I would agree with that. And one of the things that I guess I would say is, as a nurse, 
I have tried to say, make sure you get your this, make sure you get your that, make sure you get your mm-hmm. other thing. And I'm assuming that your cookbook integrates those uh, nutrient-dense kinds of uh, foods into something that is pretty easy for the postpartum mother to put on the table. Yes? Yes. It has to be easy. That's really important during the postpartum period. And the book is separated into two pieces. So it's not only recipes, it is also the nutrition background. And that nutrition background is integrated into the recipes. So it's, you know, the first part is talking about nutrition needs and birth and breastfeeding. And the second part is the recipes that really integrate those concepts. Very good. Very good. Now, I'm assuming that you have created these recipes yourself. I did. Yes. And they're all kitchen tested. They are kitchen tested. My fiance had a grand time being my recipe tester for (laughs) all of these postpartum nutrition recipes. So, um, yes, it was a, a fun experience to try them out in my own kitchen. And can you attest to the fact that they are also kid friendly? They are kid-friendly. I felt really, you know, it was very important to me to make sure that these recipes were not complicated um, and not over-complex with ingredients or cooking times. So I have a nine-year-old myself, and so something that I would think that wouldn't be practical for me, I wasn't going to put on a new mom with a new baby. Yes, yes. And, you know, you talk about the ingredients. I don't have small children. But I can tell you that when I look at a recipe and it gives me a list of 25 things and I've only got four of those in my pantry, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't think so. Maybe later. It's, it just feels too complicated, even if it really isn't. I, I don't want to make a special trip to the grocery store. And I suspect I'm not the only woman on the planet that thinks that. Absolutely not. And imagine if you have your newborn at home right. um, and you're right. sleep deprived and your hormones are on the roller coaster. You're really not getting to the grocery store and you're certainly not buying that fancy herb from the specialty market right. unless you have an army um, that's going to do your cooking and shopping for you. Right, right. I, I just, I, I actually, I'm, I'm sorry to say this because you've authored a cookbook, but I just really don't use cookbooks. I kind of wing mm-hmm, it, you know, mm-hmm. but I do use cookbooks from time to time or I, I pull a recipe off from the web or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, if it looks too complicated, I'm like, no, I'm out of here. I'm not going to the specialty shop for the blinkety blunk. You know, I'm just not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so talk to us a little bit about the need for evidence-based nutrition. You know, evidence-based is such a big buzzword in our mm-hmm. uh, world nowadays. And along with that, You and I have both lived long enough and counseled enough postpartum women to know that they always want to know about losing weight, losing weight, losing weight, losing weight. So how did you marry up the idea of evidence-based nutrition, but realize that your audience was probably looking for some weight loss kinds of things? How how did you deal with that with your book? Hmm. Yes, that is a wonderful question. And it really is part of what I had seen just in my practice, which is most women come to me as a dietitian, or even when I'm seeing them for lactation concerns, um, and they maybe find out that I'm a dietitian too. And it's like, Ooh, tell me, what do I need to eat? How do I lose weight? But I also don't want to lose my milk supply. 
Um, and when we start to do a little bit more of the counseling and go through some of those pieces, um, you know, we talk about maybe their past experiences, losing weight um, and dieting and really how ineffective those have been. And that's what the evidence and the research shows is that, you know, the most likely effect of dieting is weight gain. So it's actually harmful, um, not only to any goals related to weight or weight management, but it's harmful to um, the mom and their relationship with food. So that's part of what I share and part of what had come up in the literature is integrating some of those evidence-based practices, which is not to focus on weight loss. So that's a theme throughout the book. Um, I talk about how we can use nutrition principles. However, it's not focused on weight loss. Um, and I address that that's a really common concern because, yes. you know, moms are having huge identity shifts. Absolutely. And, you know, what I consider diet culture, which none of us really get away from. There's always messages around weight and our bodies, especially as women. And um, it really has found its way into postpartum, which we need to really be protective against um, because it's not the best practice for us in terms of, you know, our nutrition status, and it really can affect our milk supply if, you know, we're continuing to choose to breastfeed as well. Jaren, one of the things that sometimes comes out of my mouth, usually when I'm teaching professionals, uh, as you know, I teach a comprehensive lactation course, uh, both online and, well, up until recently, uh, live as well. And I hear myself talking about nutrient-dense foods. Mm-hmm. And always there's a hand that goes in the air with the, the live courses where somebody says, Marie, what is nutrient-dense? And what I find is that I can explain what is not nutrient-dense. I am less able to define what constitutes nutrient-dense. Can you help mm-hmm. us with that? Absolutely. So nutrient-dense means, I think of it as you're getting the most bang for your buck. Oh, good. Um, Okay. Which, if you're a mom, you have, you know, you're limited on time and energy and resources to prepare food and think about and focus on your nutrition. So at those eating windows, I call them, whether it's a meal or a snack, we want to think about, okay, how can I maximize my nutrition as much as possible here? And that might mean maximizing your energy intake. So nutrient-dense foods might contain a lot of energy or calories, um, which means that it's going to help regulate and support energy over the day. So we're not having those big shifts in blood sugar. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's one way I kind of think about it. It's the most bang for your buck to help support that energy level throughout the day. Yeah. Okay. All righty. And do you get moms who ask, I get this all the time. What about eating oatmeal? Does it make more milk? And Mm. so I basically say oatmeal is a good food. Oatmeal has high uh, fiber. Oatmeal, for some people, tastes good. I can't say I'm thrilled with it myself. Uh, Oatmeal is low in calories, higher in protein than uh, box cereal. As far as the making more milk, how do you address that with people? Mm -hmm. That's a really common question is, are there special foods that are going to support milk supply? And you and I probably have the same answer, which is, you know, you can eat all the lactation cookies you want, right? Um, Or all the oatmeal, that sounds good. However, it's going to depend on 
feedings and output, right? That's going to have the biggest impact on milk supply. Um, So certainly I use the language of there's foods or nutrition that can be supportive of your milk supply, which, you know, I would always emphasize making sure that you're getting enough, making sure that you have a good balance of different macronutrients that's going to support, you know, your energy intake and in turn your milk supply. However, there's no, there's no magic wand. There's no special foods that, you know, I can, or anyone can recommend, can recommend. It's going totally to be agree. consistency with feeding. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jaren, for saying that, because that is such a common misunderstanding. People really think that if they eat whatever it is, fill in the blank, uh, that somehow that's just going to magically create more milk, and it just doesn't. It just mm-hmm. doesn't. Uh, that being said, oatmeal is very fine, fine food. So if you if you like oatmeal, uh, that's great. But it's not going to be uh, the magic bullet. Certainly, talk to us a little bit about the differences in nutritional practices here in our Western society versus elsewhere. I must say that somebody just asked me a little bit ago, and this also was related to my course. Marie, I've heard you say that it's important to have a global perspective before we take the IBLCE exam. Uh, How does your course address this? Blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of have to talk about that. But one big thing I think is, uh, you know, foods. Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., when we talk about a steak, we're talking about like a 12-ounce porterhouse. And the fact of the matter is, in other parts of the world, that would just never be consumed. So talk to us a little bit about those differences and why they matter. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful question about your course, about the cultural and global aspects. I think something that really comes to mind is we know that there's a huge gap in our culture when it comes to prenatal and postpartum care. There's a lot of systemic pieces um, in the care that we have don't have solutions yet for. Um, however, in you know, non-Western countries, they really have a wonderful framework for supporting women after birth. Um, throughout the pregnancy, there is community and there's support. And Postpartum is really relished as a time of honoring women. Um, So that means there's caretaking. Usually um, women of the family are either living with the mother um, and they take over, you know, the day-to-day chores, the cleaning, the cooking, um, and just general hygiene and taking care of the mother. And I think of the impact that has on the breastfeeding relationship and how powerful that can be. Um, but also on mom's healing and her nutrition status as well. Um, because in many of these cultures, a lot of the nutrition practices are meals or are ingredients that are more difficult to procure or they're soups and stews that take hours. And there's a lot of nutrition benefit in those practices. However, we don't have the framework in our culture to support that, right? Um, I, I mean, I'm certainly not going to make a stew that takes eight hours to cook. Um, I just don't have the bandwidth for that. And I can't imagine a, a mom is going to have that either. So it's important because my hope is that the work that we're doing in the birth and postpartum world is going to help support changing that framework and the systems we have to be more supportive of postpartum. 
And it's important that we're bringing to light how important nutrition is during that time because we focus exclusively usually on the baby and we're not talking about this mother-baby dyad, which is so important. Yeah, and you know, Jaron, I can't help but say this is a wonderful opportunity for me to tell people worldwide uh, this podcast airs in at least 126 different countries that I'm aware of. Mm. But here in the United States, we really don't do a very good job with bringing food to the mother. We certainly don't move in with the mother. Now, some of us have our mothers or mothers-in-law or whatever. But um, I'm thinking of other practices that we have here in the U.S. You know, somebody dies, what do we do? We bring food. Somebody has a baby, yeah, we may or may not bring food. Mm-hmm. Or we bring something for the baby, but we kind of forget about the mother, you know, those sorts of things. So I would encourage you, if you are not pregnant or lactating, but you are part of a bigger group, it could be your church group or your whatever group, uh, try to organize some sort of, and I know this is very common among military mothers, by the way, that they will bring items to new mothers. And I, I've always presumed that that includes uh, food. But anyway, you know, this is something that all of us can do and make it something simple that will warm up easily or mm-hmm. freeze easily or or whatever. Because I absolutely agree. Uh, all of this, it may or may not make more, may make more milk. That's not really the question. The question is, does it enable the mother to be with the baby more frequently? And that absolutely is related mm-hmm. to the, the more milk, that, that whole relationship. So uh, talk a little bit about how different births affect nutritional needs and then how to deal with that in terms of actually making that food or having that food available uh, postnatally or postpartum. Mm-hmm. So one topic I go into this in depth in the book is talking about how there are variations in so many different birth experiences, right? And some of the variables that might affect your nutritional needs are how long you were in labor, a mom who has a very quick labor versus a mom who has an extensive labor. I mean, think about the amount of energy that she's using during that time. Um, That's going to be a huge difference. Um, You know, if there is any tearing or damage to tissue, that's going to impact protein needs and healing. Um, And of course, you know, a cesarean section, depending on if there were any losses during that time, we have again, you know, tissue and skin that's being impacted that increases protein and energy needs, um, and just a different amount of healing overall. So there are many medications, you know, all these different variables can really impact Um, what your nutrition might look like. And I wanted to talk about it in the book because I think that so many women really are surprised by how ravenous and hungry they are after birth. Um, yes. Yes. And I think it could feel a little scary and a little foreign because there's a lot of messages around hunger and just, you know, food and messages we get. But I really want to make that space for women to know that that's um, very important to capitalize on that time because you're replenishing those stores. Um, Yes. And the second part of your question of how do we make that happen is part of, you know, kind of changing that framework overall, which would be, you know, hopefully moving towards a model that includes, 
if you have resources to hire a postpartum doula or set up, you know, community with family or friends that is going to create that meal train or have some of those meals already prepared for you or frozen in advance and really taking that postpartum planning into account up until the birth, we're consumed with the birth plan, but we're not just like with breastfeeding, we're not really thinking about how are we going to care for ourselves during postpartum. Yeah, I want to go back to that ravenously hungry thing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I've worked a lot of labor and delivery, I've worked a lot of postpartum, and I've worked a lot of nights. And one of the things I have found is that sometimes mothers will have cramps in the immediate postpartum period, so they kind of don't want food. But if those get under control with some medication or they just get better. Now, here's the other thing is that when they are in the act of breastfeeding, those cramps will intensify. Mm-hmm. Uh So those things all kind of play into if they're eating now or later or whatever. But if they kind of get past that cramp time, which may be a little or a lot, what I find is that they are absolutely ravenously hungry. I distinctly remember one night, it was, uh, you know, probably one o'clock in the morning and this woman told me how hungry she was. And it turned out that it had been a holiday and I was able to get the supervisor to let me raid a really good refrigerator. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was hospital food, but I think it was intended for the staff. Mm-hmm. And I loaded this woman's plate up with everything, partly because I knew that I had the opportunity, but I thought, I don't know what she likes. So I'll just, I'll just put it all here to my utter astonishment, Jaron. She ate like something that I would expect a 16 year old teenage boy to mow through, you know, Mm -hmm. the plate was high piled like four inches or five inches high. And she just mowed right through it. And I hear Mm -hmm. you saying that is intuitive. That is what your body is asking for. And you didn't mention this, Jaron, but I can't help but say it just makes me crazy that in many parts of the world, including here, we are still holding women NPO, that is giving them nothing to eat during labor, which is the number one dumbest, most unphysiologic, most unevidence-based thing I've ever heard of. Now, of course, the rationale for that is you might have to have a cesarean section. And nowadays mm-hmm. with cesareans, like a third here in the U.S., you know, I, I, I understand that, but it is not physiologic. So I'm right. kind of guessing that this is why some women are really extra hungry. And if they've labored for a long time, that intensifies that hunger. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it is replenishing those stores. Um, and we know that it's a wild ride with hormones and hormones yes. affect our appetite as well. So it's really this, you know, combination of not having access to that nutrition during the birth and labor process and also trying to recoup some of that nutrition after as well. Yeah, thanks for bringing in that hormone thing because you're absolutely right. I want to go back a little bit to that weight loss bit and the fact that everybody just assumes they should be losing weight or that they need to be losing weight or that the media is telling them that they're, you know, no longer as as slim as a model, that kind of stuff, you know. But I also want your uh, take on the woman's uh, 
body image and mental health. And along with that, what I would call comfort food. Mm-hmm. I have seen some women who become a new mother and uh, they just want their comfort food. Is that so bad? Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I, my instinct is no, it's, it's not <laughs> bad. But I also, you know, I practice from, um, you know, what would be considered more of a specialty in, in eating disorders. But I don't just see, you know, women who have eating disorders. I also see women who have disordered eating or maybe even women who have just dieted or struggled with their weight for, you know, what they would say, maybe their entire life. And that's a lot more common than we know. I mean, we know that it's around like one in five that will struggle with, you know, an eating disorder, disordered eating, and, and even higher for those that might be dieting. So, you know, the idea of having comfort food at a time where your body has been through so many changes, um, no other time in life does weight change so drastically in such a short period of time. Yes. And there's a huge identity shift as well. You know, if you have really ascribed to, you know, the messages around weight and now you've gone through pregnancy and gone through this huge weight shift and now you're, you know, left with this postpartum body, it can be really difficult. So I practice from a philosophy of not judging food as good or bad. There are certainly foods that are more nutrient dense versus others. However, you know, it's typically not helpful for us to judge or label food as good or bad. Food doesn't have moral value. It's just the food. (laughs) I've never thought of it that way, but you're right. Mm -hmm. It does not have moral value. Uh, I I will tell you, Jaren, I have a very active blog and I've written my blog every Tuesday and Friday for years now. And the number one post almost every day is on the effects of chocolate while breastfeeding. Mm. And it tells me, you know, when I first noticed that, I thought, oh, it's because Easter is coming up or it's this or it's, and then I realized, no, people really want to know about this chocolate thing. And I will not forbid women from eating chocolate because I know that for some people it's their comfort food. Uh, Personally, I don't really care about chocolate. I, you know, I can have chocolate twice a year and I'm done. But uh, I I think that when we start forbidding certain foods, um, like chocolate isn't that big of a deal, but, but I, I wrote about it from an evidence-based standpoint, but I, I won't steal your thunder here. All right. So, um, talk about the idea of rewarding infants with food and the fact that probably all of us do this a little, I, honestly, I had quite a day yesterday. It, w- it wasn't a bad day. It was just a day, you know, mm. I got home and I said to my husband, oh, I wish we could just go out and have some really good food tonight because I feel like I've worked really hard today. I I need a good reward. And I heard myself saying that and thinking, now, Marie, you know better. This is not, this is not a thing to do. So I actually ended up having something kind of normal, but, (laughs) but talk to us about that whole Mm -hmm. reward thing and how it really Mm -hmm. starts early on. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I might have a a different perspective than what would be expected, which is that because I practice from a place of food doesn't have moral value, you know, we have what's called the spectrum of of normal eating, which is that food is supposed to be pleasurable, right? And it can be part of our, it's part of most of our celebrations um, and experiences. It's social and 
Um, you know, there are times where we all overeat. There are times where we undereat, and that's part of the spectrum of normal. Um, and that's not to be judged as good or bad. So, you know, I work with moms um, when they start to feed their babies to work from this framework of not judging food as good or bad. And also, we don't need to regulate our baby's intake. We let them feed on demand. Um, and we don't need to manage their portion sizes. You know, our job is to really protect that intuitive eater. So that's part of why I was fascinated with breastfeeding is this is what I help women do is get back in touch with their intuitive eater and their babies are amazing mirrors. You know, look at your baby that you don't have to, you know, you're not counting calories for your baby. You're not limiting their portion sizes. You're allowing them to self-regulate because they have that ability. Absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to rewards, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Certainly if it's happening at a high frequency, then I would say, you know, I wonder if there's another need that you have um, that we can do in another way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jaren, you just gave me kind of this ding-a-ling-a-ling here in my brain. Are you saying that when we watch our babies breastfeed and they absolutely are intuitive eaters, I don't think there's any argument about that. Are you Mm -hmm. saying that somehow as adults, we begin to model our own behavior after that? Hmm. I think it can be a really powerful experience for us to model that behavior. I would say the majority of women that I work with really struggle, right? It's one conversation of why can't I get my eating under control or why is it that I'm always going towards chocolate? And it is a really interesting mirror to say, well, you know, think of how you would talk to your child or hear how your baby is able to regulate their body's energy and they're able to trust their bodies, right? We don't have to manage or control it. So that's part of what, you know, I encourage moms with is you don't need to control everything in terms of your intake. Your body has that ability to regulate weight and nutrition on its own. Yeah, I like that. I do. Uh, as we start to wind up today, Jaren, can you give us some tips and ideas? I, I mean, I know you got a whole book, but can you give some, us some tips and ideas for preparing for healing from birth uh, with nutrition? Mm-hmm. So we touched on a little bit of this. I think the biggest piece that I would emphasize is having a postpartum plan. And I think we're getting better about it. We're talking about postpartum more. Um, you know, moms are talking to expecting moms about, whoa, you better buckle up, you know, postpartum is a whole nother ball game. Um, so having some kind of plan in place and thinking about how you're going to, you know, get food and prioritize nutrition during that time. So whether it means seeking out help or finding a way to access your community and support during that time. Um, also, you know, many of the strategies that I have in the book are about, preparing practically. So it might mean having some, you know, pantry staples, canned or frozen items. And I think that surprises a lot of women. Um, There's kind of a stigma with oh, frozen or canned food not being nutrient dense or healthy. Um, But it's really context dependent. So in a time where, you know, moms are limited on time and energy, a frozen meal that has everything you need can be just as supported nutrition wise. So those are some of the big tips that I talk about in the book that can help you really plan for postpartum. 
Jaron, you made me realize that I had a guest uh, a year or two ago who talked about uh, having a postpartum plan, and she has written a postpartum workbook. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Well, we have a we have a birth plan, so how about we have a postpartum plan?" And that's kind of what you're alluding to. You talked right. earlier about having a doula, and I'm eager to say. This has just come down. Now, I'm not sure when people are going to be hearing this because we're, re- we're recording it just prior to Christmas, but uh, TRICARE, which is the insurance, the health insurance for military families, is now, this is my flaky understanding because I am not military, but I do have three military mothers who are working for me, and I will tell you, they're all excited because it appears that the military insurance, the TRICARE, is now going to cover doula and lactation consultant visits. Wow. And so we don't have the particulars on this. And from what I can understand, it's not unusual for the military to come out and say something and then not give very good explanations. So, you know, I don't want listeners to think that this is somehow going to be just instant, but I would say, look into it if you are pregnant and having a doula, I I just like, I don't know why anybody wouldn't have a doula. Mm -hmm. It's not that expensive. And similarly with an IBCLC and look at somebody like Jaron, Jaron has both the breastfeeding expertise as well as the nutrition expertise. So I would just say, look at what your options are, sniff those things out and, uh, you know, take advantage of anything that you possibly can. Don't, I guess maybe I would say, don't think that you can't, don't think it's not out there. Put those antennas out. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yes. As many resources and there's many free support groups right now. There's many groups that have moved virtually. So absolutely. Having that community is really essential. Absolutely. Hey, Jaron, I know I said we were winding up and we we kind of are, but if you're, uh, if you can talk a little bit more, I, I am aware that there are lactation consultants who are in private practice. I am aware that there are uh, RDs who are in private practice, registered dietitians. Mm -hmm. I often get this question about starting uh, a business, going out on your own. You are not attached to a physician's office or a hospital or a whatever. Uh, Could you just tell one thing maybe that would inspire people as they're looking towards the new year? What would be the number one thing that you would identify as being the most exciting about having your own practice? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. It is the most exciting thing to be able to create what you want that's really unique to you. And yes, yes, that is, you know, full circle is my personal lived experience and also my professional experience coming full circle. And it was so neat to bring in so many aspects of my own experience and what I see and be able to create, you know, what is needed in the community. So that's something that has been so beautiful and so rewarding in being in private practice and the relationships as well. Um, The work that we do is relational, not only with our clients, but, you know, you know very well that the birth community is just wonderful to be a part of. So that's really what comes to mind. Jaron, I hear you talking and 
the the word that jumps out to me here is vision. When you own your own practice, you have a vision for making a better world, for making better nutrition, better breastfeeding, better birthing, better whatever. And honestly, for as many years as I was in the hospital, I realized that, yeah, you can do that, but it's kind of really hard. When you have your own private practice, you have your own vision of what that really looks like, and you have the power and the insight to really make it happen. I loved what you said. I, I geez, you know, I hadn't really thought about it quite that way, but you're absolutely mm-hmm. totally right. Uh, it would be a good opportunity for me to say that uh, in 2021, I am going to be offering coaching services to people, not necessarily uh, just IBCLCs or nurses or dietitians, but any healthcare provider uh, who is looking to start or grow their own business. Uh, so I loved your answer, and it helps me to understand that those are exactly the kinds of people that my vision is about, which is how to help them. Uh, you and I never got this business stuff when we were in school, I'm sure. Neither one nope, of us did. not at all. But we've kind of had to figure it out as we've gone along, and I've realized that I want to help other people to figure it out without making all the mistakes that I've made, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, wow, well, this has been a great session. Uh, I want to repeat the name of of Jaren's book. It is called The Postnatal Cookbook. And if I said postpartum earlier, I was mistaken. Those two terms are interchangeable, but uh, specifically, if you're looking for it on Amazon, or I, I'll, I'll mention it on my blog as well, it is really The Postnatal uh, Cookbook. And Jaren spells her name J-A-R-E-N, Soloff, S-O-L-O-F-F, and you can find her at Full Circle. And could you tell us the name of your website, please, Jaren? Absolutely. And I'll spell it out because Circle yes. is a little bit different. So yes. it's www.full, F-U-L-L, and then Circle is C-R-C-L, and it's .co, so .co. Oh, I did not get that part. Okay, .co. Very good. Uh, I'm sure that you will find uh, her book. The, it, your book is on your website, Yes. Correct, it is. Yes, but you can also get it through Amazon. I will make a, a note of it on my own blog post and in the hopefully the show description here. Uh, but it's been really, really fun to have you with us today. Uh, thank you so much, Jaren Soloff, for your book and for all of the good insights that you've given us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, I will be here next week and every week at Born to be Breastfed. You can also read my blog at mariebiancuso.com if you're interested in attending my 90-hour course or my review course, or if you need help with interpreting photos for the IBLCE exam or anything else lactation-related, I've probably got it. You can visit me at M-A-R-I-E-B-I-A-N-C-U-Z-Z-O.com. And in the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week... 
do its best for you and your baby. 